Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to another episode. So today is part one with Dr. Jamie Good. Now, if you are into wine, I am sure you will know exactly who Jamie is. Now, he used to be a science editor. He has a PhD in plant biology, but got the wine bug, has one of the most successful wine blogs out there called Wine Anorak, and has written some really fantastic books about wine. Now, those of you who've been following me for a while will know as I have started working for an English winery, I've got far more into that wine geekiness, understanding how that vine turns into wine. And with the third edition of Jamie's book, Wine Science, coming out last year, I thought this would be a great opportunity to chat with him about just some of the subjects in his book. And we only cover the smallest amount. Now, this podcast is not going to be too crazy technical. I wouldn't be able to cope with that. However, there are some words that are mentioned that maybe you might want to look up further. So don't forget, there is a transcript. So if you go to my show notes right at the top, there will be a link. So download it, find those words, and maybe go on a bit of research further and deeper yourself. Now, in this first part, we're obviously going to look at Jamie's history, how he got into wine, and how that all evolved. Then we're going to look at flavour chemistry. So aromas and compounds that are in wine and break it down a little bit and specifically look at Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough, New Zealand and discuss why that wine is so different from other Sauvignon Blancs around the world, why they have specific compounds that are much higher. We'll talk about flavours being changed by ladybirds. Yes, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And we'll discuss the research programs that are happening to be able to understand those aromas and compounds more. We'll talk about how when you can understand the composition of a wine, how you could actually recreate it, how you could fake the wine. And then we're going to touch on light strike, which is very, very bad for wine and Brettanomyces, which is a species of yeast that gives flavours to the wine that many people find as a fault, but others really enjoy that in their wine. So there's loads in this episode. I hope you enjoy and certainly give me your feedback if this is the kind of episodes you would like to dive deeper into. Enjoy this episode. So, Jamie, we're recording. This is official. I want to get to the most wine geeky part of you and your life, and I want you to talk about your wine t-shirts. <laughs> no, this is a the t-shirts is a it's a funny thing. It shows that you can't really plan everything. Okay. Um, but but during lockdown, I started doing these um, sort of wine on camera mm-hmm. um, slots. You know, initially just sitting down on a bench tasting wine, but then standing up tasting wine, and and so I was putting them on Instagram and they started working and started getting some traction. And yeah. accidentally, what I did is I wore different t-shirts. Um, accidentally? So quite... Ah! Yeah. Because so it wasn't I commented the on that. It, just, it just happened to have a different t-shirt on each time. Yes. And, and suddenly the t-shirts became more of a thing than the wine, I suspect. I think a lot of people <laughs> were, were watching them just to see what sort of t-shirt I had. 
so after after a while, I cut, this kind of became a thing, the T-shirt. Yeah. So yeah. I decided I have to wear a T-shirt every time, even if it's February and I'm standing outside, you know, I'll be wearing a T-shirt. And, now that's commitment. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'd go and film in the woods, but I'd take four different T-shirts with me and four different wines and film each one, you know, do a little T-shirt change between each wine. <laughs> oh my God, I love and, it. And after a while, I realised that I've kind of gone through all my t-shirts. I had quite a lot of them. So how many? Pick, so, I, oh, hundreds and hundreds. I mean, hundreds I, I, of wine t-shirts. Yeah, yeah. Well, most but, of them are wine related. Some of them aren't, but um, a lot of them are wine related. Where are you, you getting them, up them along, from? You just pick them up, and then suddenly people started sending them to me as well. So, you know, often I get a sample and then a t-shirt. You know, so so the t-shirts have been quite fun. I need to get in fun. on this. Yeah. yeah it's okay. Quite fun. So, so what happened? Tragedy. You'd run out of all your T-shirts of your hundreds and you were like, what do I do now? Yeah, well, I started, so I, I kind of thought, oh, I'm, I'll go and buy a few. And then people started sending them me as, as well. So so I think I've, I've kind of like, I've, I've run out of space for T-shirts. So, any, you know, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of rotating through them all again, you know. Um, so yeah, it's quite funny. Okay. Well, also any wineries listening to this, if you could send Jamie a hoodie, so in the winter months he can stand no, in don't. the forest I, and be warm. I, I still, I still use t-shirts. I'll go, I'll oh, go sorry. down in a jacket and I'll, I'll stick to the t-shirts. I think. So you don't want it? Okay, sorry. I don't want hoodies. That. No, hoodies. Are, yeah, they take up a lot of space as well. Oh, so okay, sorry. Jamie's hardcore. And if anybody who wants to go and check out Jamie's hoodies, you can go on Instagram at Doctor Jamie Good, as in Doctor Dr. Doctor Jamie Good, and then and make comments on Jamie's t-shirts and see which one is your favorite. So, okay, right, bringing it back to non-t-shirt related fun, I wanna talk about your PhD. So your PhD was in plant biology. I don't know if this is a stupid question, but how much of the plant biology that you learned about actually had a focus on vines? Any of None it? at all. This is back okay. in 19, I think I started in 89 and I finished in 92 and then got it in 93. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is before I was into wine, really. So it was just a, it just plants were the thing I did, and then I spent fifteen years working as a science editor. So I was fully scientific, okay, well versed in lots of different areas of science. So this scientific literacy translated beautifully to wine, because wine is actually, you know, even people who never studied science use science terms all the time when they're talking about wine. They'll go to a vineyard and. They'll be talking about some quite high-level plant biology, you know, pruning or the influence mm-hmm. of light on the bunch development, and also, you know, the wine world is full of science talk. And yeah. um, so, so I thought what would be really useful is to kind of use this as a niche for getting into wine, because I was already full, fully signed up wine geek when um, I started writing professionally. Um, but also, it would just be really useful to translate the science into something that means something and is accessible to most of the people in the wine trade who just don't know much science at all. They probably last studied science when they were age 16, <laughs> you know, and, and here they are operating a professional sphere when some knowledge of science is going to be really helpful. But this is interesting because you've missed a slight portion. You said that when you were studying your plant biology PhD, you weren't into wine. So then what got you into wine? What brought you over to that side? I, I, I think I'm just a curious person and I started drinking wine. Okay. You know, obviously at university, you drink all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so I never really drank wine until uh, I met a friend who was really into wine. And suddenly, you know, on Sunday evenings, we'd gather, a few of us would gather around his place and he'd open a couple of bottles and we'd try them. And this was new for all of us, really, that this idea that wines can taste different because of where they're from or because mm-hmm. of the year they were made in 
Um, you know, everyone has a sort of general sort of sense of what wine is about and probably drinks wine, you know, most people tend to. But just realizing that the, actually the depth of this world and the breadth of it is is enormous and it's really interesting. Yeah. And so it's a contagion sort of thing. I think that's how most people get into wine. It's like mm-hmm. some people have got maybe a, a latent um, interest in, in wine that's never been awoken. And what it needs is just this, this sort of contagion, this exposure to interesting wine to awaken um, that sort of interest. And yeah, it's not for everyone. I don't think everyone, you know, if everyone in the world decided they were really interested in wine, then it would be problematic because there isn't that much interesting wine being made to go around the whole world's population. But mm. if a small subset of people who drink wine kind of get bitten by the bug, then that's fantastic. You know, it's, it's really cool. So you were bitten by the bug. You continue to drink and learn on from the wine side of things. And then you set up Wine Anorak online, which was your wine writing site. Is that correct? Or was there something that it, before that? Yeah. So, so the internet came along. <laughs> this thing called so the we're internet. Talking about, yeah, so, so mid to late 90s, you know, people started getting email at work and you had dial-up connections mm-hmm. and used to go on the internet. Everyone, and people used to make hobby sites. And that's what I did. I learned how to do HTML and built my own little hobby site. Uh-huh. And it was kind of like, um, it was a, you know, I was on the discussion boards as well. That's the thing that the internet brought along is that you could go and discuss things on these discussion boards. And there was, a, there was one in the US called the Wine Lovers Discussion Group. It's fantastic. Okay. You know? like-minded geeks and you could learn from them you can go and chat with them still exists and so it's like a university of really i don't know it probably still exists mm. but bulletin boards have kind of faded away mm. in the age of social media they're not really so popular yeah. anymore but at that stage they were really popular and so that was a that was so that that prompted me to do wine anorak which was a hobby site um but it kind of grew and then in november 99 i registered the domain i got my own hosting and shortly after that, I started getting people wanting to advertise on the site. So uh, then, then shortly after that, we're talking 2000, 2001, I realized that people weren't taking the internet very seriously, uh, you know, within the wine trade. Mm. So I needed to get print commissions. So I started pitching ideas to, to the various magazine editors. And I'm, I started writing for wine magazines. And then I got a book deal in 2004. And... Sunday Express column in 2005. So this was all moonlighting activity. This was yeah, all okay. just stuff I was doing in my spare and time. What, and during the daytime, you were being a scientist. I was I was working as a science editor. Yeah, uh-huh. so I had a day job until until February 2008. Oh. So it's, that's the way I did it. You know, you, it's it's and then social media sort of came along just after that. I think um, you know Twitter 2009. I think I signed up for Twitter in 2009. Facebook I think it was 2008, and then um. I remember getting one of my friends signing me onto Instagram in 2013. She said, "You're going to need to, <laughs> you're going to need to do this." And so I thought, "Yep, this sounds cool." So I started on Instagram, and so they've really changed everything as well. But I think coming from the outside, I've ne- I've never really been. I've always been coming from the outside and starting afresh and learning new things. So it's just a kind of continued that arc of discovery, and um, I guess it's you know that. that there's more changes to come, I'm sure. You know, it's it's, oh, it's a really well, interesting world. Yeah, you better get yourself on TikTok. That's one that I haven't quite managed yet, <laughs> but we'll leave that for another discussion. So, <clears throat> for anyone who goes to Wine Anorak online, they're going to see that you 
travel obviously around the world and you get to know winemakers and taste through their range and then you write these very authentic and very interesting accounts on what you found there maybe their soils all of their wines how many wineries do you think you have covered now on the site um i could i could i I can't really guess it's definitely hundreds (laughs) maybe thousands um because it's been going a long time yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The other thing is, every time I've updated the site, because I do all the tech and stuff, I've always tried to keep the previous iterations of the site. So you can go all the way back to the beginning on the site. You're still There's no articles that have been published there that have disappeared. And that's taken some... It's quite a challenge. Normally when sites do a redesign and everything, all the old stuff disappears. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always kept it all there. So you can see all the... Even the hand-coded HTML stuff, you know, it's, it, it's pretty antediluvian, some of it. But it's, I think it's good to have it there. Love it. And so, do you have an answer for this? Your most significant wine experience, having travelled to thousands of wineries? Yeah, I think the, the, probably the, the best experience was doing vintage. So, okay. you know, staying for 10 days or, you know, and during harvest and mm-hmm. kind of being the lowest of the low sort of our interns doing the most mm-hmm. menial tasks. I think that's been really interesting because it's a connection with wine. Yeah, um, yeah, that, yeah. That, that really helps you understand wine better. And so I've done vintage in a, a few places and that's been really exciting. Whenever you get close to the creation of wine or the realisation of um, that, that year's you know, vintage, I think that's really fascinating. Favourite vintage place? <laughs> oh, um, well, was Peter Allen Finlayson at Gabrielle Skluf in South Africa. Ah, that, okay. was, that, was, oh. that, was, that was a beautiful time. I really enjoyed that. Well, I think South Africa, just in general, when you see the landscapes, it's just so beautiful on the fauna and flora. Was that was it more the winery itself that maybe made it that little bit more beautiful? No, it's, it's the people. I mean, there's a good, mm. there's a really good crew there, you know, and it's it's just a fantastic place to do it. And also, it's a place where you do vintage in warm weather. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> T-shirts that and is... shorts, as opposed to hoodies and you know puffers. And we've already understood your affiliation with T-shirts, haven't we? All right, so let's take it. I want to take this to the fact that you've done keynote speaking in so many different places. And to lead me on to my next question after, you were a keynote speaker at the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc celebration. So just because this has become such a brand, specifically Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, what did you learn there? And what did you speak about? What were you educating people on there so if i remember correctly and i think i'm remembering correctly that was a technical talk <laughs> looking at how um specifically about the polyfunctional thiols in sauvignon mm-hmm. blanc because i think yeah. sauvignon blanc is really interesting and, and what's fascinating about new zealand and i think this is um, you know some people like to bash sauvignon but i think what they've done is is effectively you know this whole wine region which is now over twenty-seven thousand hectares didn't exist really until the mid 1970s. Yeah. The first Sauvignon went in the ground, sort of like as a, as a, it, you know, the initial plantings didn't have any Sauvignon. So this, I think it was the 75 plantings, the second round of plantings, where Sauvignon first went into the ground. And even by 1990, there was still more Muller Turgau in Marlborough than there was Sauvignon Blanc. I didn't Blanc. know that. Okay. So Sauvignon Blanc is really now dominates Marlborough. Obviously, Pinot Noir is very important, and there's other varieties that play a role, like Chardonnay and Pinot Gris. Uh, but Sauvignon really dominates. And it's just a remarkable success story because it was unplanned. It was, you know, the, 
something that just happened. This place yeah. is there's something about the place. And I think that the questions are still being asked is what exactly is it about Marlborough that produces such distinctive Sauvignon Blanc? And I remember the first time I tried a Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, this would have been probably in about 1990. And I was blown away. I thought this is totally remarkable. This is utterly remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, so distinctive, unlike anything I've ever tried from anywhere else. And so New Zealand put in quite a lot of money to try and work out what it was that made Marlborough Sauvignon so distinctive. Um, and so that was something I got involved with, you know, translating some of that science into something that's more accessible. So I did a book on the science of Sauvignon Blanc after ah, interviewing okay. lots of these New Zealand scientists. And so that talk mm-hmm. was based on some of the work that was in that book, particularly this work on these group of compounds, which are volatile sulfur compounds called polyfunctional thiols. There's um, mm-hmm. 3MH, 3MHA, and 4MMP are the abbreviations for them. And I won't use the scientific terms. Yeah, can we stick with them? <laughs> yes. And, and it turns out that Marlborough has really high levels of these compounds, particularly 3MH and 3MHA, that kind of give this passion fruit, gooseberry, grapefruit sort of aromatics, and which are pretty important in Sauvignon Blanc aroma. So there's been a lot of research on that. How can you get higher levels in the wines? Because it's it's from the precursors that are present in the grapes, which are then trans, translated into these aromatic compounds by the yeast during fermentation, yeah. um, that you get them in the wine. So it's kind of interesting. And I think that it's been fascinating to watch the, the, the internal discussions that have taken place in Marlborough, this precious asset that makes everyone so much money, which is Sauvignon Blanc. Mm-hmm. What if some other country learns how to do it the same way but cheaper and that would be a real <laughs> problem so you know yeah well I mean you focused on that a little bit in one of your chapters in the third edition of your book wine science which has got me all inspired obviously to do this podcast with you and so one of the chapters was on wine flavor chemistry and so there's a part on the key flavor compounds in Sauvignon Blanc so you've already mentioned the reason why it's probably a little bit more aromatic and pungent and I guess different is because of these polyfunctional thiols. But what about the the mesoxypyrazines? Because I used to naively, I would just say to everyone, "Yeah, Sauvignon Blanc, it's kind of got that green note, nice and herbaceous, because of mesoxypyrazines." And it seems that perhaps that's not as important. So no, they're certainly important. So, so methoxypyrazines are very interesting compounds. They're they're pungent. They have this real green. Um, quality to them you know think mm-hmm. of tomato leaf or green pepper um, and they're present in in lots of grape varieties and Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot and Cabernet Franc all have reasonably high levels of methoxypyrazines which gives them a kind of little green foil to the yes. to the fruit um, but Sauvignon has lots of methoxypyrazines especially when the grapes are picked quite early and initially people got very excited about methoxypyrazines and South Africa I remember a lot of early South African Sauvignons that I tried you know, it's almost like they tried to get as much methoxypyrazine as possible because they thought this was the, the you know, the, the key secret to, mm. to Sauvignon quality. And even a couple of winemakers got busted for for actually blending up green peppers and adding them to the wine. No, no, it was a you... big scandal. Yeah, yeah. So were... Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because in your book, you you do say that methoxypyrazines are mm. actually in green bell pepper. So they literally. Yeah. Took... So, oh my gosh. Yeah. Which is kind of illegal, so it's not true. <laughs> kind of. I but also, also just methoxypyrazines on their own are t- t- can be quite unpleasant. Um, mm, okay. And there's, there's a problem that's 
been experienced in Canada, for instance, in the Niagara region, where they've had lots of ladybirds um, on, the, on the grapes at harvest. Um, yes, you mentioned this in your book. This is brilliant. The ladybirds release methoxypyrazines when they're stressed. So you need a few of them um, in each ferment to produce this very green sort of green methoxypyrazine nutty character in the wines that can be quite unpleasant. Um, so that's been a problem. So a lot of wineries now, especially if they've got soybean farms nearby, um, what they'll do is they'll use a vibrating sorting table to make sure they haven't got any ladybirds on their bunches of grapes anymore. Because what happens is when the soybeans are harvested, the ladybirds end up in the vineyards and mm-hmm. around harvest time, and that's really not great. Um, so, yeah, so methoxyprising is part of the story. But interestingly, um, there's other compounds like hexanol um, that are also contribute green characters to Sauvignon. So okay. ultimately... One way of studying all these aroma compounds is to isolate them and do this reductionist approach and say, this smells like this, this smells like this. But usually it's a fusion of all these different flavor aromas that, that work together to produce um, the, the smell of wine. And considering them all together is much more helpful than trying mm. to think, talk of them one and one, you know, thinking yeah, this is okay. the key to quality, this is the key to quality. They're not, you know, the levels can go up and down, but often there's presence of aroma molecules below their threshold, so you can't actually smell them in the mix can make a distinctive contribution to the overall smell of the wine. So we have to be careful that we don't just focus on a few a sort of star aroma molecules and forget that actually um, it's a lot more complicated than that. Oh, I wish you were just going to give us the final answer and then we could all just go <laughs> go get ourselves a, a nice glass of Sauvignon Blanc and just relax. So does that mean then, they've obviously identified that Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is different and one of the big differences is the higher levels of the polyfunctional thiols, but have they been able to work out why? Like, is it some sort of something in the soils? Is it the sunshine hours? Is it? Do they have any idea why there's higher levels? Well, there's no real simple answer to this. Yes. One thing they did find out in their research is whether um, machine harvesting raises the levels quite a bit. Um, okay. Because what they did is for their research blocks, they went and hand harvested before the machine harvesters went in. Okay. And they found that the, the polyfunctional thiol levels were much lower in hand harvested fruit than machine harvested fruit. Um, mm. So something is happening during that process of machine harvesting that's elevating the precursors in the must that then got turned into polyfunctional thiols. Interesting. Nitrogen is quite important. So um, elevated nitrogen levels can often result in higher levels of these polyfunctional thiols. And also there's a possibility, intriguing possibility, that some of the pathways of the production of the precursors are related to defence pathways in the grapes. So maybe a little bit of sort of very early stage infection of botrytis, which is obviously one of the issues that that, that you have in um, Marlborough, just before harvest, botrytis can be a problem. But if it's just mm. the very, very first stages, maybe that's elevating the disease response or defence pathways. And alongside those defence pathways being um, switched on, you're getting the increased production of the polyfunctional thiol precursors. And this is an idea as well. And then they've also thought about what about the elevated ultraviolet light? Because in the southern hemisphere exactly you know mm-hmm. it's very clear the air around there there's just lots of sea and there's not much land around new zealand it's stuck in the middle so the actual uv light levels in new zealand are significantly higher than you might find at a similar attitude in the northern hemisphere mm-hmm. and so that's going to have an effect on the the vines you know the, the and, and what happens in the grapes as well so there's lots of things all working together here 
I just, I think it's fascinating. And I suppose this is where you would agree. There's, there's a bit of wine science here, which is people working to research these wine aromas and to look into the compounds and to find ways to give these kind of answers. So has there been any specific advances in the last few years recently to understand the chemical composition of wine? Is there different ways to do that at the moment or...? It just it's a long, long haul continuing research program. Yeah, there's lots of people looking into it. I think some of the most interesting approaches are the ones that kind of look at, um, you know, just looking at all the different aroma compounds together. So you can work out the most important aroma compounds in a wine and yeah. you work out the concentrations they occur in a wine. And what you can do is you can make a model wine. So you take a wine, you, you, you deodorize it. So you're taking off out the aromatic compounds, but you're keeping the wine matrix, you know, the stuff. That, and then you add back the key aromatic compounds at their original level. And that therefore you can make an experimental wine. And usually that that, that smells, you know, with Sauvignon Blanc, they've done this and it, it smells like Sauvignon Blanc because they've added the key aromatics back at their, uh-huh. their original concentration. Say so maybe 20 of them, you know, and you've got those 20, add them back to the wine matrix bingo, you've got something that smells like the real thing. So what that then allows you to do is to take out or increase single or groups of these aromatic molecules to see what effect they have in a real wine or a model wine solution. So you're looking at, rather than just sniffing them and saying, well, this smells of this, and therefore this is contributing this to the wine, you're actually looking to see what effect it has in a sort of model wine solution. And it's really interesting, that sort of research, because it's, I think it's more powerful and it, and it gives you surprising results. So there's a lot of this sort of work taking place. And there's also yeah. some really interesting work looking at terroir. So you're looking at different sites, sites where the soils differ maybe, but their climate's very similar. And then you can look at the effect of the different terroirs on the aromatic composition of the wine or the you know, so this sort of research, I think, is really exciting. Mm. Now, the thing is, I think you mentioned this in your book, if people can fully understand all of the key aromas and the compounds, they could effectively build fake wines. (laughs) They could look at a very, very premium wine and find a way to chemically adapt a far cheaper wine to make it taste like a specific expensive fine wine. Yeah, that that would be fun, wouldn't it? It, it, I, mean, I mean, it would definitely it would be fun. It almost feels like cheating, though. But well, very of course, interesting. It's, it's not legal. But it's if you're just doing it as an experimental thing, I think what would be fascinating would be to you know what you need to do is you need to it's like a, think of a painting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, take a famous painting. It's probably possible to reproduce the famous painting to the extent that you hang it next to the original, and even art experts standing five feet away can't tell the difference. Yeah. So the wine equivalent of that would be to take a famous wine and reproduce it to the point that even the best tasters on the planet can't actually taste the difference. So you put it in a triangle test, they can't spot the wine that's not the real wine. This would be really interesting to do. So if you've got that, then what what you've got is a situation where, you know, the wine education possibilities would be fantastic. Yes. The question is, would a collector, would a collector be interested in that wine? And the best way to answer that is to think about the paintings again. So if you've got a, say, for instance, a Vermeer, you know, a really, really, you know, only 31 extant Vermeers or whatever it is. So they're really expensive mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. rare. If you had a Vermeer that was absolutely the same, that you couldn't tell the difference between that and the real one, 
would it matter whether that Vermeer was real or not? And the answer is, yes, it would matter. Because you could put on an exhibition of all the, the extant Vermeers and people would come from across the world to see them. But if you put exact replicas such that experts couldn't tell the difference between the real one and the fake one, and nobody would bother even going to the exhibition mm. because they're not the real, people, the people want to see the real thing. There's yeah. an added value to the real thing, even if the sensory experience you're getting is identical, you know? So say, for instance, a, a famous vintage of Romani Conti. If I was to produce three glasses and say two of these glasses are the same wine, one of them's a different wine, and I'm not telling you which, but one of them's the real thing and one of them's fake, and you were to fail to distinguish which is the real or the fake one, then I was to give you a bottle of the fake Romani Conti to take home. You'd be like, Oh, <laughs> just like I'm not really that interested because even yes. though I couldn't tell the difference between the taste of that uh-huh. and the real thing, I wanted the real thing. I want something that's genuine. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're so right. That's so so interesting when you when you put it like that. Now I just wonder with the famous wine fraud criminal Rudy Kinnear one. I've discussed him before on my podcast. He was able to do some pretty good work effectively chemically creating wines that were far more superior they were definitely not the same and thankfully you know didn't get it spot on but do you think that that was actually using some science actually understanding the key aromas and compounds and finding no that's trial and error oh really just you know what old wines taste like and you know to be honest i've tasted lots of really good old wines some have been amazing and some have been kind of like you're having to help them along a bit sometimes, mm, you know, because okay. yeah. it's like, this is really good, but it's, I'm kind of pushing this uphill a little bit, you know, to make it, <laughs> to make it taste better than it actually is. You mean and, using your emotions, like, you don't know, it's got so much story. It's got so much. Yeah, yeah. To you have to with yeah, some old so wines. Yeah, some yeah, old yeah, wines yeah. are ethereal and mag- magnificent. And some old wines are kind of like, it's kind of tastes like old wine, but it's, there's something there, <laughs> you know, so, so what you've got with Pernia one was f- fantastic. He used this strategy of seeding, he starts off by developing a reputation for having the real stuff, you know, and the collector yeah. scene, you know, the, it was all over the internet, the collector scene, they were, he was Dr. Conti, you know, on the, on the bulletin boards and, you know, people revered, people have a reverence for these high rollers who are opening seriously mm-hmm. fancy bottles um, and obviously seem to be able to source them and, and pay for them. And he, so he was, would have spent an awful lot of money on genuine wines, building up this reputation as a, as a high-end collector. And there's a, there's a collector scene out there, people who eat, get together and smash like a, incredible wines. But then that gave him a, the, the ability then to pass off stuff that was fake. Mm. And this is, the, this is kind of the weak point of the wine industry. And I remember the Hardy Rodenstock did the same thing, you know, back in the day. Mm-hmm. The billionaire's vinegar guy. And yeah. a lot of very well-known wine people went to those dinners. And they'd have started off with, real stuff you know but then it would have got more fantastical they'd have got drunker um people's ability to discern really old stuff and let's face it how many of the top wine journalists have tasted lots of these great old wines and the answer is not not very many so if you don't have a reference point you might be a great taster but if you haven't got reference points you you kind of know nothing you know (laughs) you're absolutely Mm -hmm. too easy to convince by uh, an old fake wine Um, so so this is the weakness of the wine industry i think is when it comes to these rare old bottles and there's too much there was a that some of the auction houses it seems they didn't do as much due diligence as they should have done you know in the past so it's 
it's tricky. It's a really tricky. Um, it requires people who are really know their stuff to be on the lookout for fakes to stop these wines circulating. Yeah, and then I suppose, of course, you will always get a dud bottle. Something sometimes a wine might be oxidized, or it might have a flaw. Something happens. Of course, not every wine is always the same, which probably makes things even more confusing. Yes, for, it's really know. challenging because the old bottles all vary. Because you know, if a, if a wine's forty years old, there'll be quite a range of variation in that wine you know and how it was stored as well storage yeah yeah, the quality of the cork there's there's going to be lots of variation and that makes it really difficult i think Mm. to really be sure whether something's genuine or something is a fake and do you talk about any of that in your other book actually you've got so everyone james got loads of books just go to the website and you'll see but you released the book flawless which actually talks a lot about wine faults do you do you go into that how wine can change over time there's, or no, there's a bit about heat heat damage heat damage and storage oh yeah light that, yeah, yeah light strike ah, there's some light, light strike, strike. Well, yeah. people should know about light strike right from a, a scientific point of view, what happens when you leave your bottle right by a window for sunshine to hit it? Especially for clear glass. Clear glass is the big problem. Mm-hmm. So yeah. wine's bottled in clear glass. If they see too much sunlight, there's chemical reactions take place in the wine that create more of these volatile sulfur compounds, but not good ones. So mm. the wine can end up smelling and tasting of drains and just, just not the way it should be. And so this is a problem, especially for sparkling wines. And so clear glass, sparkling wines, even, you know, taking a drink outside on a sunny day, it can affect the quality of the wine. Um, so that's something you have to be careful oh, really? of. Yeah, yeah. It, it can happen that quickly. Yeah, and beer apparently as well. If you have a pint of beer outside and, you know, on a sunny day in a pub garden, you've got to be careful because, um, well, I guess it's it, it can actually happen fairly quickly, yeah. Do you know, I was going to leave this question to the end, but I'm just intrigued because I think wine flaws and flavours and compounds, I think it's all fascinating. What's your opinion on Brettanomyces, which some people consider a wine flaw and some people really love in the wine? What's your opinion on that? If I was making wine, I'd do everything possible to avoid having Brettanomyces in my wine. Mm-hmm. Having said that, there are some very famous wines that are very delicious that have above threshold levels of the different compounds, the flavor compounds that Brett produces. So I think we have to be a little careful to say just because you can spot Brett does not mean the wine is necessarily faulty. Because in some contexts, a little bit of Brett can be complexing. Mm-hmm. Although, as I said, if I was a winemaker, I'd do everything I could do to avoid it because I think you generally lose more than you gain with Brett. It makes wines taste the same. Brett is a type of yeast, isn't it? it it's a yeast, yeah. So yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. Um, you know, but it's a yeast that tends to grow when Cerevisiae um, has finished its job. You know, when the, mm-hmm. the alcoholic yeast has finished its job, um, yeah. then if there's little bits of sugar left or there's phenolics left or anything, Brett can start growing in the wine. Um, so it's a particular problem for red wines because they have a, generally have a higher pH um, than white mm-hmm. wines. And... Yeah, it's it's really quite common, and yeah, so you, I think it's one thing that that really keeps winemakers up at night is the worry about Brettanomyces. Interesting. How would you stop it? Just by putting more sulfur dioxide in? Could you? Well, I think I mean sanitation is really important because it's mm. that initial load, that initial inoculum of Brett's going to have an effect. But it's making a wine a place that Brett isn't going to grow into. So what you want to do is avoid high pH wines. So high pH wines, once you get to okay. 3.8 or 3.9, Brett grows much more easily in those, partly because yeah. any sulfur dioxide you add is less 
um, effective at high mm-hmm. pH. Yeah. So less of it's in what's called the molecular fraction, which is where it works. So high pH is a risk. Any residual sugars after fermentation, that's a big risk as well, not just for breath, mm-hmm. but also for bacteria, for VA production. So you want to avoid that. And you want to keep the, the gap between alcoholic fermentation and mild lactic fermentation, which takes place in pretty much all reds. You want to keep that gap as short as possible. Or if okay. there is a gap, you want to keep the wine cold. So temperature is a big factor. And some people are saying, you know, that they find that if they've got barrels stacked five high, they get breath problems in the top one, they're not in the bottom one. Because often in a ah. warehouse, it's much the temperature increases yeah. quite mm-hmm. a bit as you go up. Yeah. So the wine's warmer and breath grows more readily in warm wine. So temperature is a factor. Interesting. Um, yeah. So having, you know, the, and also the other thing is not dribbling in little bits of sulfur dioxide, kind of having a big hit rather mm. than just using a bit and then topping it up. Uh, it's much more effective. You can use the same amount of sulfur dioxide, but have much, much better efficacy with it if you do it in a big hit rather than dribbling in little bits. Okay, that's super interesting. And for anyone who just just doesn't know what we're actually even talking about, as in how would they identify Brett? I mean, I would describe it as sometimes just barnyardy, like it, it like a, a savoury, even sometimes spicy, earthy kind of smell. A bit funky. <laughs> how would yeah. you describe it? Well, animally, animal sheds. Animal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. Phenolic, like a sticking plaster, the old fabric sticking plasters, germaline, the stuff used to. Those sort of phenolic medicinal smells. Um, it varies in terms of the wine, you know, so different wines express breath a little bit differently. And some people have also been interested in looking at the different strains of Britannomyces to see whether their flavour impact, whether some of them is, has a nicer flavour impact than others. So it's all quite complicated. Do you have do you have a recommendation for a wine that is high with Brett that is that you've enjoyed that somebody could go and try? Oh, Chateau Musard, an older Chateau Musard. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, and high in VA, high, yeah. yeah. That, that's I mean, kind of like, okay, yeah. they're lovely wines, but, you know, I've seen the analysis in some of those wines, and it's kind of like, whoa. Yeah, and that they're not for everybody, no. because they really are a little bit off-piste, aren't they? But if yeah. somebody hasn't tried Chateau Musard, they, they definitely should. It's definitely a certain wine experience. It's something to tick off your list, isn't it? I, I mean, I used, to, I used to hate Brett, but... Um, when I was a, when I first started drinking wine, I used to hate it. I recognised the flavour and the smell and the taste, um, but I didn't know what it was. But that really put me off. But now I mm. probably I can live with it a bit more easily. Although I don't like yeah. it. I'm yeah. not one of these people <laughs> who automatically says a wine is faulty and must be you know kicked out of the competition if it has any at all. I think that's a bit too extreme. Too extreme, yeah. yeah. So everything we just spoke about, you're going to find in Jamie's book, the third edition of Wine Science. And that retails, if you're interested, at about £30. You can get it from Amazon, from WH Smith's, Waterstones. Now, part two continues looking deeper into wine and we are talking about yeast strains of which are incredibly important to wine without yeast there is no wine but different yeasts can yield different flavors and textures so it's all incredibly interesting we'll be talking about stems about whole bunch pressing your grapes, carbonic maceration, what else? Ah, yes, sulfur dioxide. Is it actually bad for you? What does it do? How can a winemaker be smarter 
when adding it. So all of these subjects and more. Now it seems rather apt that my wine quote of the episode is from Dr. Jamie Good. And so I will read you one of his rather inspiring summaries from the book. So he wrote, the world of wine is fascinating. It is incredibly diverse. There are many segments to it. People make sell and drink wines for different reasons. But at its heart, this is more than a liquid in a glass with some pleasant flavour and mind-altering properties. It is culturally rich, intellectually engrossing, and provides the drinker with a connection to a time and a place. Science, used well, can help us understand and enjoy it better. So I hope you are in the mood to continue getting wine geeky. Make sure you've subscribed to this podcast so you know when the next episode is out. Like it, share it with all your wine loving friends, take a screenshot and put it across your social media platforms. And if you can take out two minutes, I'll be incredibly grateful. As I always say, if you can leave some little stars and a few comments as it makes the podcast far more discoverable. Right, you know what's coming next week. So... Until then, cheers to you.